The Way BK podcast is dedicated to pursuing and promoting a true understanding of Jesus Christ and the transformation He provides for all who submit to Him to live in a way that is pleasing to God as revealed in the Bible. Let's join our hosts as they discuss The Way. Hey guys, this is Caleb Churchill. Um, this is... What's up? It's Ben. We're gathering together today to uh, talk to you again about the book of Acts. And uh, today we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 4, verse 32, through Acts chapter 6 and verse 7. Um, this is the Way BK podcast. We, if you're just joining us um, for the first time, we invite you to check us out on the web, www.thewaybk.com. Um, if you have any questions or things you'd like for us to discuss, things we can uh, be talking about that are helpful to you, um, we encourage you to reach out to us and give us feedback on on this. Uh, today we've been discussing together this uh, over the course of the year and this podcast uh, what it means to follow Jesus. We've been talking about uh, discipleship and, and uh, what that looks like both as individuals and also as a community of God's people, as a church. And uh, as we've been uh, reading through the book of Acts, we've been noticing that this is a story about the kingdom of God, uh, about God reigning not just in heaven but also on earth and his people. And uh, what we've seen so far in the book of Acts is an explosion of growth. Um, It started with just about 120 disciples after Jesus is raised up from the dead and ascends back into heaven has turned into uh, to a kingdom now of thousands uh, of people who are gathering together to worship the Lord already. Um, but today what we want to talk about is, uh, is the challenges that come with growth, uh, the growing of the kingdom. And uh, what we're going to see in the, in the reading today is that, so, that good things um, that are happening in the kingdom of God can also produce some great challenges and struggles. Uh, so Ben, talk to us a little bit about uh, what what we learned from uh, starting in Acts four uh, and five. Uh, what are some of the good things that are going on in the church that, and and what are some of the challenges that come up from it? So. Yeah, I mean, at the end of Acts four, you see sort of a repeat of what we saw a couple weeks ago from Acts two, where they love the Lord so much, they trust the Lord so much, they're selling their stuff, they're giving it to each other. There, you know, there's a great, great line. I think that should be a goal of every group of Christians, every church. Verse 32 of chapter 4 in Acts. Now the full number of those who believed in Jesus were of one heart and soul. That's just a great description of what a church should be striving for. We have one heart. We have one soul. We have one life that we're sharing together in Jesus. And so because of that, no one said anything that they actually owned actually belonged to them. They would, if, if there was a need it popped up, they'd, they'd give it away. There's even one individual highlighted in Acts 4 in verse uh, 36 who's going to come up a couple more times as we continue moving through the story. Verse 36 says, Thus Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is striking that this guy, first off, he was, I don't know if it was because of this or if it was besides this. It doesn't indicate clearly to me. But regardless, he, he was so so much of a help to the other Christians that the apostles noticed him. So out of mm-hmm. thousands, the, the 12, the guys who were kind of running the show here, 
they notice this guy. And not only do they notice him, but they know that everybody else notices him so much that they start calling him by this nickname that becomes his name. They start calling him Barnabas, and he's going to be known as that throughout the rest of the book of Acts because they saw how much he cared for others and how much he was trying to help others. A beautiful picture, right? Uh, What it means to be an encourager. Sometimes it's not just through words, but it's through actions. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the picture here at Acts 4 is, man, like, there's no stopping us. We looked at last week the initial persecution that the church faced. Here it's like, oh, I guess there's not going to be problems after all. You know, there for a second, you're like, I don't know, maybe this thing's going to get messed up. No, like, we're still growing. People are still doing all this stuff. There's still a lot of love here. There's still a lot of faith in Christ. But then we kind of hit a roadblock in chapter 5. And as you pointed out, the challenges we're looking at today are directly related to the good things that have been happening in the church. And, of course, we know that in pretty much everything. When your physical body grows, people say, oh, your, your body hurts because you're going through growing pains. You're, when you're a teenager, your body's changing. You're like, ah, this hurts me either emotionally or physically. Uh, whenever companies grow, there's always little hiccups and challenges. Whenever cities grow, there's problems in the infrastructure that they're not able to provide for the amount of people that are there or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly with churches, the same is true. So at the beginning of Acts 5, it appears that there was this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, who noticed how Barnabas, Barnabas was getting noticed, maybe because of him selling his field, and they thought, oh, we want that too. Um, by the way, I'm interpreting that. You may have another take on what's going on here, but I, I think that's fair given the way the story's told right after. Mm-hmm. And what they do is they sell their field and they take part of the money. We don't know what to say. It was $1,000. They take you know $500, and they bring it to the apostles and say, we sold our field for $500 just like Barnabas. We're bringing it all. Mm-hmm. But really, they were secretly keeping part of it. Uh, which is a sign of greed, a sign of greed at least for attention and, and uh, power, if not also kind of some... They weren't as content as Barnabas was to give away their stuff. To be fair, Peter says, hey, when you had it, it was yours. You could do whatever you wanted. You didn't have... Nobody's forcing you to give your money up here. But anyway, uh, we see some greed in them. Certainly we see some jealousy in them with Barnabas. And then, most of all, there's the lying, which is what Peter highlights in verse 3 of Acts 5. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain in your, your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So this is the first time that it's specifically highlighted, at least. I'm sure somebody committed a sin at some point before this in the church. Maybe not, maybe not, but I would imagine somebody did something bad. Right. Learning to be a Christian is complicated, so I'm sure some people are doing some some not great things. But this is the first time where someone does a blatant, as, as Peter says, a contrived sin. This wasn't just like, oh, man, I'm sorry, I flew off the handle, or oh, I, you know, whatever, got tempted and fell in this way. This was a purposeful sin. And, uh, and he really calls him out for it. For one, he says... He doesn't say you sinned against us, which I think is a lot of times the feeling in a church. You did this and you hurt me. Right. It's not that you sinned against us. You're sinning against God. You're lying to God. You're trying to deceive God. Are you serious right now? This thing you've done, and it is kind of against us, but really it's something you've done against God. Uh, so it, he calls it out, and apparently there were other people present. It wasn't like a private meeting. I don't get that sense, at least from the text, because what it says in verse 5, Ananias heard these words and he fell down and breathed his last and great fear came upon all who heard of it. 
and the young men rose, wrapped him up, and took him out and buried him. So one thing is, is they publicly call out the sin. Secondly, and more strikingly, God executes this man Ananias for a yeah. sin. Which is pretty jolting, I mean. I... It is. It's pretty kind of shocking, right? I mean, everything's going so well, and then all of a sudden God's dropping people dead in the church. It's like, wow. Right. You might think uh, church service might be a little smaller next week, right? I mean, one would think. You would, you would imagine. <laughs> it doesn't seem like, as you go through the text, it doesn't seem like this would happen, which is even more amazing. But yeah, and, and of course, I mean, his wife comes in later. You know, she didn't know what had happened. She had cons- uh, conspired with her husband. Peter had basically does the exact same conversation and the same thing happens with her. He actually says, the guys who buried your husband, they just walked in, and they're going to bury you too. And boom. She's gone. It's almost like an, an extra dose of mercy for her that she gets another chance. She's yeah. already conspired to do this. Her husband's already been killed. Peter says to her again, hey, tell me whether you sold the land for, for so much. It's like, here's your chance right. to say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. But no, until she gets the same fate. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I mean, the, there's I think there's a few lessons, and um, you can probably add, in, add on to some of what I'm thinking here, but... One would be that, as we already pointed out, it's worth mentioning again, whenever good things are happening in a church, Satan is going to use those good things to work to create some kind of opportunity for himself. So here's all this good stuff. People are selling their goods. They're providing for the poor in the church and all this kind of stuff. People are being celebrated. It's a good thing to celebrate godly people. Barnabas is being celebrated and honored. Satan uses that circumstance to create a a temptation, a circumstance for temptation for Ananias and Sapphira. And so it's just whenever things are going really well, either in my own personal life or in my church, there's a lot of unity. There's growth. There's people being baptized. There's all these great things. That's good. And I should celebrate that and not not be negative about that in any way. I also need to be realistic that what that means is Satan is coming. Because all the churches that where there's no Bible teaching and there's division and there's immoral practices... He's not. He's not worried with. He's already got those. Right. Like he might check in every once in a while to make sure he's right. keeping them on his side. Right. But he's got nothing to work on over there. It's places where godly things are happening. That's where Satan is going to be most eager to work. So we should, and we should expect that, right? Exactly. I mean, that's one of the big things you get here is, uh, is that expect that in a church, even in a church that's healthy and loves the Lord, and I mean, I'm, I'm guessing. Church in Jerusalem probably had about as good preaching as you could ever have, right? I mean, tough. Like, these guys yeah. actually knew Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, these are the it wasn't like us where we're like, you know, in the gospel of whatever, they would just be like, you know, one time we were eating breakfast with Jesus, and he made a great point. I wanted to share it with you. Right. Know, like, it was a totally different thing. Right. So, you, you know, it, it's not, it's when problems, when corruption happens in churches, that's not necessarily a sign that, uh, that something's wrong with the whole thing or that, mm-hmm. that God's plan has failed. This is just what we're seeing here is the spiritual warfare yeah. taking place between Satan, who's trying to pick off uh, uh, disciples who are weak and vulnerable and selfish and, and sinful. Right? Mm-hmm. No doubt. No doubt. Which I think is why you see in this the first occasion that we see sin in a public way that was had a, had a maybe public impact or a corporate impact, mm-hmm. you see it called out so strongly. And you see it dealt with so severely. What this indicates to us is just how seriously God takes sin. I mean, it's appropriate that the people who heard about it, verse 5, there was great fear. And then verse 11, after Sapphira, as this kind of saga wraps up, verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church, 
and upon all who heard of these things. So there's this emphasis on you need to fear God. We're saved by grace. The church is a family of love and grace and mercy. That's all true. Mm-hmm. It's also something that we have to take very seriously to preserve, uh, to make it holy. I mean, there's a lot of passages in the New Testament that speak about the church as like the bride of Christ. So don't let it be defiled. Or it's talked about as the temple of the Spirit of God. So don't be bringing in immoral, ungodly, bad stuff in here. You need to preserve the holiness of who we are as individuals, but who we are corporately as well. Sin is a really, really serious thing. And of course, I don't. we don't like to talk about sin because sin brings about guilt and, and personal responsibility and all that kind of stuff. But it's really serious and we have to take it seriously even after we've been saved by grace and all that kind of stuff. I think a lot of people, though, that you know, you see the story, and um, and I think I think a lot of people that might be hearing this story for the first time might be a little bit shocked at uh, how severe God is. Um, you know, what would you say to somebody who's who who hears the story and is reading through the story and said and reads this and says, "Well, this doesn't look like a God of love to me. Yeah. Look at how, look at how severe he is. He, he killed that guy after one mistake. You know, right." Uh, what would you say to that? Well, I mean, I think it's a good question. I think there's a couple of layers to it. The first thing I'll say is probably less important than the second thing, but I'll, I'll say at least two, and you probably have some other thoughts and some things to add on. But the first thing I'd say is, well, loving to who? So, for instance, if you walked into your home uh, or you walked into some place and you saw someone abusing a child, mm-hmm. well, because you love that child so much, you're going to take some pretty strong and definitive action uh, that's not quote unquote very loving or wouldn't seem very loving uh, to, the perhaps, person who's to the person who's abusing the child right yeah, yeah. and I don't I don't think anybody would contend with that and I don't think anybody would even be disturbed by that they wouldn't say well that's not a very you know you say like he's such a loving man and then he beats up some guy you know to get him off of his uh, his kid who he's abusing I don't think you'd say oh he's not loving now you just acknowledge well this person was violating the standard that he knew was wrong. Like, people know not to abuse kids unless there's some sort of, like, mental uh, uh, unwellness that, you know, some uh, mental handicap that would prevent someone from understanding that. But even then, people understand that, right? Well, in a similar way, Ananias and Sapphira knew they were doing something wrong. They had hidden it. They had been taught. They knew this was wrong. And what they were doing was going to have a corrupting influence. The problem is we don't see sins like this as that big of a deal. We measure sins by our standard, not by God's standard. God sees what sin does for someone's relationship with Him and therefore also their relationship with other people and even their relationship internally or whatever. And so God actually, because of His love for other people and His love for the world, at times has eradicated sinners uh, mm-hmm. from the earth. And that's that's a really hard thing for us to embrace. I will say I think it's hard for 21st century Westerners. I don't think it's always been that hard for some people to understand. And even now, there's a lot of parts of the world you go to, and actually understanding how God could be gracious is a little bit more unnerving right. than stories like this. Because of all the wickedness that people are facing. How could God forgive people who are right. doing these terrible things? We right. say, how could God like punish them after such a kind of not big deal sin? Maybe they should get a slap on their... So, anyway, my point is, is that this idea of like, well, if God is loving, he wouldn't do this. Actually, none of us really believe that if we really think about the way we think about think love about and relationships and treatment. The problem is we don't see sin as that devastating deal. The second thing that's probably more important than that line of reasoning 
is if there really is a God and if he really existed before time and if he really created the universe and if he really is powerful and if he really is all those things, then he gets to define terms and he gets to do things the way he wants. Mm-hmm. And that's a, maybe sounds more harsh and maybe more abrupt and I'm not trying to be dismissive of that question, but I think that's, that's really kind of the answer is if there really is God, then he gets to do what he wants. And if he tells me, hey, I do love the world and I do love you and I also punish sin, then I've just got to orient my life accordingly and pursue him and, uh, and love him for the things he is and learn to see the world through his eyes, not through my eyes. So. Which this story is one of the places that kind of shows us that God hasn't changed, right? Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people talk about, well, the Old Testament God was like this. You know, he was so harsh, he was so severe. But the New Testament God is so so kind and gracious. Well, this story reminds us that, that God is kind, but he's also severe, and we get to choose which, which part of his character we get to experience by our own by our own behavior, right? Absolutely. Um, and it reminded me of the passage in, in, in Hebrews uh, chapter 2 where he talks about if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God's not a God's not a less severe God uh, now that Jesus has come. If anything, how much more right. God's given His own Son uh, to die for us, to take away our sins, for us to come into this community by God's grace that He has washed our sins away, come into the presence of God, into His into His holy temple, His people, His church, and then to lie. To uh, to the apostles, it wasn't lying to the apostles; it was lying to the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I think a lot of times we want to think that way. We want to think, well, my sin—it's just to, I'm just sinning against that brother. Um, Jesus says, if you did that to to me, if you did that to them, you've done it to me. Yeah. Um, and and if you didn't do it to, to them, then you haven't done it to me either. Um, and and this is a good reminder of that, right? God is God is a severe God. I, I think that's important. The, the The real question is not how is God so severe why is god so severe the real question is why why isn't this the story of all of us right, uh, right. you know we what we ought to be shocked by here is not by um god's punishment of sin but by god's extreme mercy and grace towards us truth truth be told all of us are deserving of the same punishment that ananias and sapphira received and uh, and it's remarkable just how patient and loving god is with his people yeah yeah, and what and, and what's striking is there doesn't seem to be anybody in the church. I'm perhaps there were, but there's nothing recorded. Actually, kind of the opposite. Nobody's like, wait a second. I thought this was a kingdom of love and mercy. Right. Everybody's kind of like, oh, let's not commit that sin. Right. Everybody just everybody gets it. Uh, and so I think what that shows me is that these people who believed in the gospel so strongly, the gospel made them take God really seriously. And it made them take sin and its consequences really seriously. And that's what the gospel should do for us. And maybe if I don't take God that seriously, where I'm willing to say, hey, that's sad to me, but I guess I get it. If I don't think that way, then that probably means I don't understand the gospel. Maybe I understand part of the gospel, but not the full picture of God is the right. king, he's the creator, he's the judge, and all those kinds of things. Uh, and therefore, I should take sin seriously. And that's why, I mean, maybe as a little bit of a side point, I think it's Significant to note, no human beings took this action, right? The apostles, Peter doesn't even 
uh, it doesn't seem like this was his idea. Maybe he was communicating. I think he was communicating. God was revealing this to him. Even the fact that he says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. You haven't just lied to me. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. I think that shows that God was giving Peter as an apostle some insight into the situation, much like Jesus had insight whenever he was on earth. Um, but it wasn't like, you know, the apostles pulled out the swords that they had back in the Garden of Gethsemane. And, you know, which, by the way, we know Peter has a proclivity for that because when they're yeah. in the garden with Jesus, he was, he was ready to go. He pulled yeah. out a sword because these guys are sinning. I'm going to kill this dude right. in the garden. That didn't cross his mind here. Right. It wasn't human beings taking this action. I think it's significant to note. Right. That being said, uh, there is much lesser action that Christians are supposed to take whenever sin exists in the church. Yeah. And there's a number of scriptures that highlight that. One, I think, that stands out, just to point out, point out is 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where the Apostle Paul is talking about a sin in the church where there was a man who was with his father's wife um, sexually, and it was immoral. And Paul says in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 5, he says, Are you arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn over this? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So I think the portrait is, you really shouldn't welcome him. Like if he comes to your assembly, you shouldn't be excited about it because he's still living in sin. You know, he goes on and says, For though I'm absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Because clearly he was committing a sin. This wasn't a questionable thing. This was a guy sleeping with his father's wife. This is clear. Paul even says, Even worldly people think this is gross and bad. Right. You guys should acknowledge that too. You're the holy people of God. He goes on and says in verse uh, 4. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is with you, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That is really strong language. Now, he doesn't say execute him, but he does say if he's going to live for Satan, then don't pretend like he's with Jesus. Mm. You let go of him. Don't welcome him in your assemblies. Don't welcome him. Later on, he says in the text, and he makes it clear, hey, I'm not telling you don't do this with non-Christians. With non-Christians, they have a different, it's not the same standard of treatment. You should preach to them and have them come to repentance and all that kind of thing. But when someone is a so-called brother in verse 11, if anyone bears the name of brother, if he's guilty of a bunch of sins, uh, the end of verse 11 says you shouldn't even eat with such a one. And I take that to mean in any context. You shouldn't be sitting down and breaking bread with somebody acting like everything's cool if they're living in sin. Uh, so I guess the point here is, while we're not certainly not at all supposed to take the kind of action that God takes here against Ananias and Sapphira, right. this does kind of set a really high bar for holiness that is something that's consistently talked about throughout the New Testament. Jesus taught about this in Matthew chapter 18. Paul talked about this in other passages like Romans, the end of Romans 16, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. In the book of Jude, this is talked about, about how you treat people who are sinning uh, and there has to be wisdom in that, and we don't treat everybody exactly the same. Someone who's a brand new baby Christian and they're struggling to get out of sin is different right. than someone who's rebelliously and purposely saying, I'm going to live for the world, I'm going to live however I want. But this does show us the point, and it's worth considering uh, carefully, that we've got to take sin seriously and take action to eradicate sin. One, so that the person can be saved. That's what Paul said the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved. Someone may come to repentance. Whenever you say, we're not hanging out, like we're not going to do this, mm-hmm. that may lead them to repentance and say, wow, this is actually way more serious than I thought it was. But secondly, even if that person never repents, we can't let that influence permeate through the through a church 
and uh, corrupt everybody else. Right, because if, if we do, um, the Lord may come back to that church and say, hey, I'm going to remove my lampstand from the church. Absolutely. Like the letters in Revelation, um, Jesus says to churches, you know, hey, if you don't repent, I'm going to take my lampstand away. And I think that's the key, right? It, this is about fearing the Lord and making sure that this is a community that the Lord is in, that the Lord is there, the Lord is present, right? Because it's only because God is present that these ordinary, uneducated men and a bunch of women who were not important in that society have be- have, have begun this movement that is spread to a worldwide movement uh, yes. across the world. Um, it's only because God is present in in the movement that all of this is taking place. And so if this becomes a group of people is actually not submitting to God, not obeying God, not living according to his rules, well, then the Lord either destroys the movement or he removes himself from it. Yeah. And it ends up it ends up self-destructing, mm-hmm. right? And we know that's true. We, we miss this, though. I, I, in our culture, we have a hard time with uh, with tying these ideas together of love and judgment. You say, if I, if I love you, I shouldn't be judging you, right? But actually, no, love leads me to make judgments about you so that I can help you so I can help you to be what is good for you. And we all have uh, all have seen relationships where people were unwilling to make judgments, were unwilling to say things that needed to be said, and ends up the, the relationship ends up self-destructing mm-hmm. because we haven't been that kind of love loving person uh, to them. So this is actually a part of loving God and loving each other and fearing God is is to be able to work together to to take care of one another and keep each other when we go astray. No doubt. And maybe ties back before we shift to the the other big internal problem that happens at this time or the problem that comes as a result of good things. Back to that point, though, it's easy whenever a church starts growing, I think, to start just noticing everybody. Wow, this is cool. We got this many people. We got all these good things. And you can actually start paying attention to everybody else because that's where a lot of the good stuff in a church happens, right? Mm-hmm. You're worshiping together. Man, it's powerful and it's mm-hmm. life changing. And you're you're sharing time in each other's homes and people are helping each other out with day-to-day problems and people are educating each other in the ways of the Lord. And we can put our eyes so much on each other, which is exactly what happened to Sapphira. Their eyes were on other people yeah. and how do these people perceive me and what do people think about me? They weren't thinking what's right in God's eyes. Mm-hmm. They were thinking what would make me and I'm, again, I'm interpreting a little bit, but I think it's fair to say it appears that they were trying to look good to everybody around them, right. not to look good in God's eyes. And so that just ties back to our original premise, which was here's a good thing that can turn into a bad thing. A great church, a lot of love, growth, that's good. But whenever I let my attention turn to the people around me and it's not centered on the Lord, then that can be really destructive. Yeah, which is that's exactly... On a church-wide level, that's exactly what Jesus says to the church of Sardis, right? you got a name that you're alive, but you're dead. So what What if Ananias and Sapphira had become known as the the, the marriage of encouragement? Right, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what if? It, one day, that whole couple sham... couple of comfort, I think. Yeah, yeah the, the couple name, of comfort. Yeah, I think that's it. Um, what, if, what if all that happens? Eventually, they're going to stand before God, and all of that uh, hypocrisy was going to be exposed. And, uh, and that's what we need to think about, too. Like, uh, whatever, whatever hypocrisy I may be taking part in, whatever um, hidden motives I may have within me, eventually all that's going to be exposed when I stand before God. And on that day, the only thing that's going to matter is not going to be, you know, what does my brother think about me or what does my sister or what does my church think about me. It'll just be what does God think about me. Yeah. And I need to live every day in light of that. Yeah. Yeah, i got to be cautious about letting the cool thing of 
a nice family in Christ not become the thing right. in my life? That's right. All right, so uh, the other problem comes at the beginning of chapter 6. We're kind of jumping over the end of chapter 5, uh, which is a story about some persecution that we may come back to and discuss, kind of similar from chapter 4. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's just kind of a repeated theme. We're going to see lots of persecution here, but just for the sake of this discussion, we're jumping to the beginning of chapter 6. So what's going down here? What's the good stuff? What's the bad stuff here? Well, uh, we've already pointed out the disciples are increasing in number. Uh, that comes up again here in chapter 6 and verse 1, in the days when the disciples are increasing uh, in number. Um, we've talked about uh, the disciples increasing in generosity. You know, they're giving, they're, they're sharing, they're uh, generous. Um, another thing we notice, though, in chapter 6 and verse 1, is that the church is increasing in, uh, in diversity. Um, you've got an issue that arises between the Hellenists and the Hebrews. And basically, um, just to simplify, the, the Hebrews would have been more or less the people who were in and around Jerusalem from the area of Israel. Um, they would have been Hebrew-speaking Jews. Um, the Hellenists were uh, people who were Jewish, but had been scattered across the di- part of the diaspora. People had been scattered across the empire. Um, and living in other places who would have largely spoken uh, Greek. And so uh, in the church, you've got uh, uh, the majority of the church would have been made up primarily by, by Hebrew-speaking Jews. But you also have a minority of, uh, of these uh, Hellenist-speaking uh, or Greek-speaking Jews as well who were known as the Hellenists. And a problem comes up between them. Uh, before we talk more about the problem, just note here, um, you know, the... The disciples increasing in number, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Awesome. I mean, that's, that's awesome, right? And, you know, uh, a church that's increasing in generosity, uh, that's a good thing. You know, a church that's, that's increasing in diversity, those are important things. But with each one of those things, there are challenges that arise from that. Um, you know, we're experiencing this a little bit right now. The more, the more people uh, who, uh, who join the group, uh, the more space you need to be able to meet in and the more... Um, problems that arise within a group. Uh, people don't come uh, perfectly looking like Jesus. They right. come with all of their sins and struggles. And so if a church is, is doing what Jesus has taught us to do, he, said, he told us to go out and make disciples. If, if a church is making disciples, then we should expect that there would be challenges. As, as the number of saints increases, we should expect that the number of problems will also increase. Um, same thing for generosity. You know, it's a beautiful thing to see a church, uh, members of a church giving generously to one another um, and giving generously to the Lord. Um, but then comes the question of uh, who gets the money uh, mm-hmm. or who gets the provisions that are being donated and, and how much do they receive? How mm-hmm. much is enough? Who, who determines what's a need and what's not a need, uh, you know, in the group? I mean, there's a lot of challenges that come with figuring out how to use that, uh, those provisions in a way. And that comes up here in Jerusalem. And then, and then of course, certainly diversity um, is uh, the cause of some of the greatest blessings in Christ come from uh, diversity. But, but it also brings tremendous challenges. The more diverse the community is, the more problems are going to arise, the more misunderstandings there are going to be um, because people don't speak the same language. Mm-hmm. Uh, people don't know each other well. Um, and, and there's just a lot of uh, challenges that come from that. So here's another place where, uh, where good things are happening in the church, 
But those good things can lead to challenges, and Satan will even use good things to try to bring, cause division and lead to uh, problems within. Which is what you're setting up. That's what happens, right? Some of the widows, the text says uh, the Hebrew widows were being cared for, but the people who are the kind of outsider insiders, these mm-hmm. you know Hellenistic, Greek-speaking Jews, they come to the apostles and say, hey, our widows aren't getting taken care of. Yeah, so uh, there's an overlooking of uh, these widows. What we don't know is why they were overlooked. Could be um, that uh, the people who uh, uh, were passing out the provisions um, cared more about the Hebrews than the Hellenists. Maybe they maybe they had some racism. Maybe they had some uh, ethnic ethnic uh, hatred or animosity there. Um, we don't know that uh, though. We don't know. Um, we don't know whether or not this was intentional or whether or not it was unintentional. That's not really the focus of the story. What is focused on Because is, to your point, it's just as likely, and based on the way it's handled, maybe even a little more likely, that it was just, you're from Jerusalem, and there's your cousin, and there's your best friend's mom, and there's right. like, all, like, you know, right. so you take care of the people you know just naturally, right. and you know the people who don't know you, they don't feel bold enough to come to you directly and ask or whatever. I mean, it could have been intentional, right? but it's certainly just as likely, maybe a little more likely even, that it was just... An accident, but still hurtful and still a problem. Because exactly. even if it's an accidental overlooking, that hurts me. Like, I'm getting left out or slash I'm hungry. I mean, and that's it, a problem. Yeah, and it leads to a complaint, right? Um, and it's not just a complaint that one person is making. It's a complaint that the whole minority group, the whole Hellenists are Class action suit. against the whole group of Hebrews. So mm-hmm. it's not like, oh, well, this one guy is neglecting. No, there's actually a, a, a temptation here for the whole group of Hellenists to end up looking, uh, f- being frustrated and angry and upset with the whole group of Hebrews here um, because of, because of them, their their widows being overlooked. Which um, means we're like five seconds away from the kingdom being split in two. Yeah. Hey, if you if you're a, a real Jew, then you're this kind of Christian, and if you're not, then you go in this other group. Yeah, and I probably should point out here um, that. Uh, I'm not sure that's the right thing, uh, the right way to handle this, uh, the complaint being raised by the Hellenists against the Hebrews. Uh, this word for complaint is the same word that Paul says in, in Philippians 2, do all things without grumbling and complaining. Um, so I'm not sure that it's good that this complaint is, is being made against all these people. But nonetheless, again, this is an inevitable part of a church growing is sometimes People are going to be, the more people are in a church, the more likely it is somebody's going to be overlooked. Somebody's needs are going to be neglected. Um, and the, and the, real, the real determining factor about whether a church is healthy and whether a church is faithful is not whether or not there are problems in, in the church. Of course there are problems in every church. The real determining factor about whether a church is faithful is how do they handle those problems uh, when they arise? How is the church going to address those problems? How are they going to deal with them? Are they going to try to sweep it under the rug? Are they going to try to avoid it? Um, or are they going to address it head on? And that's what you see here. Um, you know, there's a lot of things the church could have done at this point that could have uh, made this issue what was a small problem. I'll say that. Uh, could have become an even bigger problem. They, they could have said, you know, well, uh, I've never seen this. The apostle could have said, well, I've never seen Hellenists getting neglected. So, uh the implication being that if, if it hadn't happened to them, then it hadn't happened to anyone. Um, apostles don't do that. 
Uh, they don't, they also don't say like, well, you guys just need to get over it and deal with it. You've already been saved. You know what's the deal? Uh, why are you complaining about? Uh, you're just being selfish. Uh, they don't they don't they don't uh, challenge the Hellenists and be like, are you saying you know we're we're bad leaders or we're not doing a good job uh, leading this church? Um, and they also don't say, well, you know what? It'd be a lot easier if we just had a Hebrew church and a Hellenist church. So why don't you guys just go over there and start a Hellenist church? And we'll start a Hebrew church, and then there'll be peace. Um, there's no call for uh, segregation here uh, or division. Um, instead, they actually bring the whole church together, and they're going to address this problem with the whole church present. Uh, of course, not every problem is, is in need of a congregational meeting, but this problem involves the whole congregation. It's the whole group of Hellenists who are making a complaint against the whole group of Hebrews so in order to deal with the problem, uh, they're going to come together and they're going to they're going to address it. Nonetheless, this is another example of the fact that these kind of challenges are uh, are coming in in a church that's growing, in a church that's increasing, in a church that's doing what God intends for them to do. There are going to be problems that come up, tests that give a, give a church an opportunity to grow and be refined and be uh, be able to work through those challenges to bring glory to God. And the cool thing I think about the story from Acts 5 with the, the corrupting sin of Ananias Sapphira and then also this uh, social tension that was that close to being division mm-hmm. is that in both cases, not only did it not ruin the church, it was actually, as you pointed out, it was a period of refinement and led to uh, another period of growth. Look, yeah. I mean, 5.12, Acts 5 and verse 12, right after this story, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, mm-hmm. believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. More than ever, which is mind-blowing. I don't think this means that every day they were dunking 5,000 people, but it is striking. The first time they preached, there were 3,000 people. Mm-hmm. A couple chapters later, it's, there's 5,000 believers. And now it says more than ever. So whatever the numbers were before, it looks like, I mean, I don't know. I've lost count. More than ever. It's way more than before, you know. So this this problem of sin didn't devastate the church. They were able to deal with it and actually not just hold the ground where they were, but actually progress in terms of preaching the gospel, making more disciples. Same thing in chapter 6 and verse 7. Right after this issue with this social tension within the church, they handle it in such a way that verse 7 says, the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many now of the priests, the Jewish priests, became obedient to the faith. So now it's not just that like the common people are being saved, but they were even making inroads with the opposition, people who had arrested them and beat them and were preaching against them. Now we're looking at them and saying, I don't know, I think these guys have got it right. So that's really encouraging. And I think if, if you're sitting there listening, you're thinking, man, my church has problems with sin. There's lots of sin. Or you're sitting there, you're like, man, we got some real social tension, especially these days. That kind of stuff comes up a lot. Mm-hmm. If you have any sort of difference economically, generationally, ethnically, whatever, you're going to have tension within churches socially. Even just personalities mm-hmm. can have tension. But somehow the church in Jerusalem figured out how to navigate these two problems and deal with it in a really healthy way. So maybe that'd be good for the last few minutes for us to talk about what are some keys to how they handled it. So I'll throw out the first one that stands out to me, and then you may have one or two that you want to throw out as well. Uh, 
they, they practiced openness. They didn't pretend like there was no sin. Everybody heard about it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how many people were present, actually, when Ananias and Sapphira committed these sins, but people knew about it. It wasn't a big secret. It wasn't like, let's not talk about these guys. This, mm-hmm. will, this will discourage too many people. Let's just act like Ananias and Sapphira are on vacation. Yeah, you know, yeah. Or, you know, they both, you know, they had a weird diet. And, uh, yeah. they, whatever. You know, it, it, it wasn't any of that. It was, hey, yeah, these people committed sin. Let's not commit sin because this is what happens. The wages of sin is death. See? Mm-hmm. Don't do it. And that actually led to greater unity among the people, a, a greater devotion to the cause of the gospel and all that kind of thing. So that's one. But same thing in Acts 6 where, as you pointed out, the apostles didn't try to, shh, don't, don't talk about this. Mm-hmm. Like, don't say anything about this. Just be quiet and grit your teeth. I know it hurts your feelings, but just deal with it. Instead, they got the whole church together and they said, hey, guys, some of our brothers and sisters are experiencing this burden that the rest of us are putting on them. Mm-hmm. What are we going to do about it? Yeah. And there was an openness. Uh, and even in that case, the apostles practiced openness and saying, here's the parameters. You guys go pick some people. Right. And there's an openness where the apostles let the church kind Risky of... Risky business. I mean, here, kind yeah. of. Yeah. I mean, they, they did set the terms. Like, here, it has to be this. And we're going to kind of vet these guys. We're going to give the final approval. But own the solution, you know. Right. So we're going to own the problem. And we all need to own the solution together. So I just think that is probably something that... Uh, and I know there are some cases where you don't want to... Uh, shame people you know on purpose or make genuinely tiny problems into big problems right. but if it's something that does impact the whole church there's no reason to pretend like it's right. not happening right and actually that openness can help everybody process through it and actually move past it rather than trying to bury it and it strengthens and builds up the church when you get the church involved in being part of the solution right I think some you know some churches are hindered by uh, leaders who want to solve the problems for the church. And so whenever there's a problem, everybody just looks to the leaders to solve the problem solve the problem for them instead of actually owning the solution and becoming a part of, no, I'm not just going to complain. I'm going to get involved in helping resolve whatever this problem is that I recognize and see. And I love how the apostles are, 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 are really equipping the church by teaching them what to look for in a man who's going who's gonna to lead this, uh, this distribution of food. And then they're all, they're also entrusting the church. They're trusting the church to learn and to grow through this process. And we don't know exactly how that worked, but somehow the church had to figure it out who we're gonna who come to some unity on who we're gonna actually choose to to uh, to lead the charge in resolving this problem. Uh, Which can be pretty important because they're not always gonna have the apostles. They're not always gonna be in this situation. Right. So having some measure of wise openness. You know, of hey guys, let's deal with this. Let's right. deal with it. So right. I, I think that's one thing. But what else do you see? What are some of the keys to how they uh, dealt with this in both of these cases? What are some lessons we can learn from either the way they dealt with the sin or the way they dealt with this social tension in, in the church? Well, you notice that um, right after Ananias and Sapphira die, um, there's still signs and wonders regularly being done. There's still more and more believers being added, which means that the people are still going on, particularly the apostles are going on with the ministry of the word. They continue mm-hmm. to preach. They're not like, oh man, like if this is going to happen, I don't want to do it. I don't want to. We need to pump the yeah. brakes. Yeah, like, Too many people. We yeah. need to vet people let's more just, strongly. Let's just chill out here. No, they're still, they're still preaching the word. They're still devoting themselves to ministry of the word. And there's an interesting thing that happens in Acts 6 too. Um, when they call the congregation together, the first thing they say to them is in verse 2, it's not right that we should give up the word of God to serve tables. 
And then they say, you guys choose uh, people like this, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, who will appoint this duty. But then verse 4, we'll devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Which makes me think that um, one of the most important things that I think often goes wrong when challenges arise in churches, even challenges that come from good things, mm-hmm. um, is that sometimes we can get overwhelmed with the problem and lose sight of what is most important. Yep. Um, I love this about the apostles. They continue to devote themselves to the word and to prayer and not even neglected widows or overlooked people in the distribution of food is going to keep them from the priority they've given to, to being in the word and in prayer and sharing the word with other people. Um, I think a lot of problems that I've seen happen in churches and that I hear about in churches uh, come from the fact that sometimes when a small problem arises, by, by getting so consumed with that one problem, a church loses sight of its mission and loses sight of its focus and loses its sense of balance because they're no longer in the Word and in prayer. They're just sure. dealing with this problem. Um, and sometimes the church can get so preoccupied with the problem that they, they totally lose direction and focus on, on the mission. And what started out as a small problem now seems like a huge problem because everybody's you know, just only thinking about that one issue. And so sometimes a small problem can become a much bigger problem because we lose our sense of priority. Um, and it gets us distracted and, uh, and confused and, and out of balance. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. Yeah, so I mean, maybe just as a particular emphasis on what you're just saying there, as far as priorities, throughout this we see them dealing with things with prayer constantly. We've mentioned that before, so we don't need to go into that again, but it's just important to note before they solve any problems, they're praying over these guys yeah. and, I mean, all this kind of stuff. They so, believe that they need God to right. work in this situation. They realize that if, apart from God, they can do nothing, which yeah, is exactly right. what Jesus said. So besides, so I'll just add one more thing, and you may have another one in mind, I don't know, but besides openness and having the right priorities, the only thing I'd say is there was a deep trust in the providence of God. Mm-hmm. Calling out sin is a scary thing. Uh, whenever you're facing off with potential social division that goes back to centuries of problems in the world, that's a scary thing. And yet they had a real, real trust that God was going to provide for them. And I guess that kind of attaches to the the comment a second ago about prayer. This is the one thing I will say that I think is worth mentioning about the section in the middle of chapter 5, where beginning of 5, you've got the sin of Sapphira. Beginning of 6, you've got this problem of social tension. In between, there's another time where the apostles get arrested the council tells them don't preach and they say well listen we got to obey god rather than you or any any human person any man so sorry we're going to do this back to the openness thing they were open about their faith even with the world they were just transparent people they kept the priority if you kill us our priority is jesus anyways so if you kill us okay sorry you got to do what you got to do but i love at the end there's this little story that luke records of the the jewish um you know, leader uh, on the council figure, Gamaliel. And in that he says, hey, listen, he's not even a believer, but he says, listen, guys, don't mess with these dudes. If it's from God, this thing's going to succeed. If it's not from God, it's going to fizzle out like every other movement has that we all know about. But if it really is from God and it succeeds, do you want to be standing against God? Mm-hmm. 
Now, he's saying that to the Jewish council, but I think that Luke probably includes that to kind of reflect that, actually, this is what we all thought, too. Mm-hmm. As we were a part of this thing and we saw all the stuff God was doing, we understood it wasn't us doing this. It was God doing it. And we trusted in God through everything. So if we lost some members because of their sin, we're brokenhearted about that, but that's okay. If we if our guys get arrested, even killed, which we'll talk about in a future uh, discussion, that will break our hearts, but we'll be okay. Whatever social tensions might exist, we're going to deal with them. We know we're going to be okay because we trust in the providence of God and we know He's going to take care of us no matter what challenge we face, which I think is the, the comforting thing for us. If you're listening to this and you're sitting there and you're thinking, oh man, like my church is really messed up. Like we're not doing any of the right stuff and all these problems are our problems and we got even more problems and all this stuff. Well, the question is, are you relying on God? Are you submitting yourself to God? Are you obeying God? And if you are, then whatever challenges exist are going to be taken care of. And if you're not, either individually or as a church, that's going to come to fruition. That's right. That's going to be proven that this wasn't God's church after all. These weren't God's people after all. I'm not God's person. The key is that we all be penitent people who are turning back toward God, submitting ourselves to Him, and relying on His provision in our lives and whatever challenges may come. That's right, because opposing God, the book of Acts is, is showing us opposing God is just not, it doesn't work, you know. Um, no matter how much the Jewish people are going to fight against uh, the, the birth and the growth of Christianity, they can't stop it from growing. And that's, that's the proof that this is really God behind it. And I think the same is true today. Um, what ought to empower us and motivate us to try to solve problems in the right way is a knowledge that it's really God who we're, tr- we're trusting in. This is God's kingdom. And nobody's going to overthrow God's kingdom. Like, there may be people come in and take people out of our church. There may be people that come in and steal people away. There may be people that come in and, and fall away. And those things will break our hearts. They will hurt us. They will, uh, they will be challenging for us. But nobody's going to stop God from accomplishing his will. So the real question for me is, whose side am I fighting on? Mm-hmm. Am I together with the Lord and his people? Or am I going to be together with those who are fighting against God? Uh and if I'm, if I'm together with the Lord, then I can have confidence that whatever challenges come from the church growing and, and, and increasing in number, increasing in generosity, increasing diversity, increasing even in sin sometimes as, as the church grows, um, whatever challenges come up, the Lord is going to be faithful to help us through them. He's going to overcome them all. Mm-hmm. Thanks, guys. Uh, appreciate you listening in. Hope this was helpful to you. Again, if you have any questions, reach out to us on our website. Um, if you're here in Brooklyn, we'd love to have you join us. Check us out at Brooklyn Bible Studies um, on, on meetup.com. Check us out on our website, uh, www.thewaybk.com. Uh, if there's anything we can do for you, let us know. Uh, we're praying that we can be helpful here, and uh, we hope this has been helpful to you. The aim of The Way BK is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ across Brooklyn and beyond. For more information or to contact us, please visit www.thewaybk.com.